Hopefully all you girls and guys have had at least a little time to recuperate from all the sleeplessness that takes place. I mean, all the ministry that takes place here at New Covenant during the retreats. If you attended the retreat, um, at the boys retreat or the girls retreat, not as a leader, but just attended. Can you just raise your hand real quick? Okay. And then if you served the retreat like you were on the premises in some way because you served in some kind of capacity, could you raise your hand? Okay, so a little more over half the congregation just was here on the premises. And then if you participated in any way like through prayer or donations or you attended, like if you had any investment in the retreats this week, can you raise your hand? Okay, just about everybody. Everybody, praise God for that. I appreciate that, your investment in the kingdom of God. And um, I've asked Jerry to share a few words during our praise time, just kind of a synopsis of um, what God did or what happened here for the guys. I've asked Barb to do the same thing for the girls so we can hear. I know that many of you invest in these retreats, but you, you can't come out. Not everybody can come out. And so we want to hear a little idea of what God did. Also, I appreciate your patience regarding the bulletins. Um, you know how the bank or all these companies, utility companies, are always sending you letters about going wireless so they can save money on stamps and not have to take the time to print things out? Well, we've pretty much gone wireless now with our bulletin because our, our copier has been on the brink for several weeks now. So just bear with us here. Maybe we'll get used to it. <clears throat> Who knows? People say uh, that nobody reads the bulletins anyway. So I don't know what kind of difference it's making, honestly. Although I, I do read them and I feel a little out of the loop. But, um, well, we are in Matthew chapter 12 this morning. We're going to look at the first 21 verses, not all 50 verses, but the first 21 verses. There's a familiar line today, if you are in popular culture, it's a familiar line, it's become what is known as a breakup line. You know, throughout the, throughout the centuries, there have been different ways to break relationships off. And one of the popular ways or one of the popular breakup lines for today is, it's not you, it's me. And that can be used kind of as a cop-out excuse that basically says, you know, I don't want to face the truth. Our relationship is too messy. I just want to get out of it. So I'll just blame myself. And so it's the easy way out. We'll break it off. But really, what it's supposed to mean, if it's used properly, is this. You're not the problem. You are not the problem in this relationship. I'm the problem. I'm the reason it's not working out. And I, I want you to know that because I don't want you walking around thinking, what did I do wrong? I tried my best. I thought I was putting my whole heart and soul in this. I was, I was making changes. And I don't want you to beat yourself up thinking along those lines. It was me. It didn't work because of me. I'm just too broken. This concept kind of serves us well. To help us understand this entire chapter of Matthew 12, we're not going to cover it all today. It'll take a few weeks. We'll, we'll have communion Sunday and then we'll come back. 
But in Matthew chapter 12, there are a lot of things going on and there are a lot of isolated topics that pop up. I mean, like the Sabbath that we'll look at this morning and then the Holy Spirit and demonic oppression and different things. And um, so there are a lot of things that are going to pop up. And if we don't look at the whole picture at one time, we could make the error of taking things out of context and missing Jesus's point. But, and, and some people do that. But when we look at this passage in the big, big picture, it all makes sense. So here's what's happening in chapter 12 of Matthew. There's this big rivalry that has been just brewing and brewing and brewing. Animosity uh, between Jesus and the Jewish rulers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're not getting along very well. Uh, they can't seem to find any kind of common ground. And as we've been following Matthew, their relationship, really, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And you and I know that it's not at all Jesus's fault. I mean, Jesus is blameless. Jesus is faultless. He's merciful. The problem is the Jewish leaders in the relationship, but they won't admit it. They won't come to grips with it. They, they, they won't take the blame for their willful choice uh, to, to, to look at him sinfully and, and badly. And so they allow their hearts to grow harder and harder and they allow the sin to continue to poison their minds and the way they think and the conclusions that they draw. And so by the time we get to Matthew chapter 12, we'll look at this passage. They, they are literally murdering Jesus in their hearts. They're murdering him. They have these murderous thoughts and they want it to come to life. They really begin to plot and plan how to take him out physically. But for right now, they hate him. They hate what he's doing. They hate what he stands for. And it's just growing and growing and growing. And as I reviewed this this morning, I was reminded of the Ten Commandments and how the first four really are man's relationship with God. And then the other six are how we relate to one another. We're not supposed to steal from one another. We're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to covet and so forth. And yet when God gave those commandments to his creation, not only did he know that we would break the four and blaspheme him and serve other idols, but he also knew that when he became man, we would break the six. That it was Jesus that would be lied to. And we would covet and steal and even commit adultery as we follow other gods instead of Jesus. And that there would be Jesus takes that command about thou shalt not kill and says, if you're even angry at your brother, you have committed, you've broken this command. So all of these commands that he came up with are being transgressed. He's experiencing it the first hand, what it's like, what it feels like to be sinned against, not just as Jesus, God, but now the son of God, Jesus, the man. And yet he's completely innocent. I mean, he's the hero. He's the king. He's the warrior. He's the. Savior, and, that be, and yet because the Pharisees have allowed their hearts to grow cold and not warm up to him, they are just seeing everything very, very backwards, very, very 
twisted. To the point where Jesus, rather than being viewed as the Redeemer and the Savior, promised in Holy Scripture, He is just everything that stands to ruin all of their hope in God. Now, what they really need to do, as we know, is humble themselves and just admit, you know, Jesus, it goes against my flesh, but it's not you, it's me. I'm the problem. I'm the sinner. I'm the one that's refusing your teachings. I'm the one that's hardening my heart and climbing into myself and indulging in the flesh. But they don't. And it's a good reminder to us that every encounter with God is an opportunity to either humble our hearts or harden our hearts. Every time we hear a sermon preached, every time someone encourages us or exhorts us or we have our devotion, we read a book, whatever it is, whenever God's word is there and we have an encounter with God, we have an opportunity to either humble our hearts or harden our hearts. And if we take that opportunity to harden our hearts, there will be consequences. So before we think too harshly against the Jewish rulers, we want to realize that if it was not for the grace of God that invaded our hearts, we would also hate Jesus. Because to not be for him is to be against him. But God's grace comes in and he changes our hearts and he softens our hearts. He gives us that gift of faith so that our eyes can turn towards him. But whenever someone encounters him or whenever someone sees Jesus, we can humble or harden our hearts. And I pray that by God's grace, our hearts would be humbled this morning. I want to look at this chapter and break it into six segments. We'll just take two this morning. So let's look at the first, the Lord of the Sabbath, in the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was 
Restored. God made something beautiful there, didn't he? Healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, we just read the passage. So we know what happens. We know what Jesus did. We read that passage and you say, okay, so Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. The disciples are plucking some heads of grain and they're eating them. Apparently, that was the thing they did in that day instead of going to the store and getting a snack. And then Jesus encounters a man that is in need. I mean, the poor guy's hand is withered. He can't use it. And he needs to be healed. And Jesus heals him. He does it on the Sabbath. And you come away from that passage thinking, okay, so maybe the, maybe the disciples messed up a little bit and they should have just waited till they could get their next meal and not had the grain because it was on the Sabbath. But really, healing a man with a withered hand. So all of this results in this consensus that we have got to stop this guy. We got to find a way to destroy him and take him out. So how do you get from here to there? How do you draw such different conclusions when you've witnessed the exact same thing? And in order to understand that, we got to kind of climb into the heads of the Pharisees and the Sadducees to see how they think. Because that's not the conclusion I would come to. As you know, the Pharisees are, they're the defenders of the law. That's one of their jobs. They take their roles and responsibilities, the Jewish leaders, they take it very seriously. So they're the defenders of the law. They, They study God's law. They teach God's law. And they apply God's law because it's so important for it to be obeyed Correctly, So we have to know how to apply it. So they would ask the question after they read a law, what does this mean in everyday life? Because I want to make sure that I obey it. Now, that's where I start as well. Got the same starting point, and that's where you should start as well. You read God's law, you trust it as infallible. And you understand what it says, and then you want to ask yourself, okay, if this is true, this is God's will for me, then how do I apply this in my life? So, so far, so good. But the Pharisees came at it from a different angle. When the Pharisees looked at the law, unfortunately, they looked at this as a way for them to gain their salvation. They looked at God's law as as rules for them to obey in order to be in right standing with God. That's the approach. That's how they looked at. So that's why applying it was so important to them, because it really was a matter of life or death. When they think when you think that if you obey this rule, you get into heaven and you get to be with God and have his favor and you don't obey this rule. You fall short and you go down to Shoal, that's a big deal. So that so everything is very important to them, and how they apply God's word is very important. We might call them uh, legalists today. You hear that term in church all the time, and a legalist is somebody who takes the commands of God and actually brings them down from their lofty place. To make them more manageable. Now, they're still very stringent and strict and hard, but they're 
brought down to a level that I can at least obey so I can have eternal life. And that's what that's the approach they took to God's law. So they looked at it differently. They looked at their obedience as their bargaining power to find favor with God. Of course, we are all legalists at heart. You might look at think about that and think, oh, that's terrible. We're all legalists at heart. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the religions of mankind across the globe, whether it's here or here, east, west, north, south, every religion except for true Christianity is a works based religion. How can I work myself up to God? How can I get his attention? What can I do in and of myself to be in right standing with whatever gods are up there? And Christianity comes and blows them all out of the water when it says that Christianity is a grace based religion. Which means you are in it strictly by God's invitation and power of grace executed upon us. Not something that we do. It's a whole different foundation. And based on our belief, we look at life differently. We think about even the laws of God differently and how to apply them differently. And that's why... We can come away from this scene thinking, what was so bad about this? And the Pharisees are very, very offended and they are plotting murder. So they were always coming up with rules and regulations. How? Here's the command. How do we apply this? Because the last thing we want to do is disobey it. So we have to figure out ways to apply it to know I just, I just passed this test. I just fulfilled this law. So here are some of the things that they came up with. John MacArthur helps us out with this. So, for instance, the law in Exodus sixteen twenty nine says you cannot travel on the Sabbath. See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore an oath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. So they hear that command and they say, OK, what does it mean to not go out of your home? What does it mean to stay there? Does that mean that I can't even step out of the front door? Does it mean I can take two steps out of the front door and then I'm still considered at home? How do we apply this law? Does it mean I can't even walk around my yard? Does it mean I can't go to Bible study on one, you know, go to Bible study this afternoon because Bible study is too far away? What does this mean for me in my life? And so they came up with rules so that they could be sure that they were obeying that law. And the rule that they came up with was that you could go 3,000 steps from your house and it was not considered breaking the law. 3,001 fail. There was an exception. However, if you had some kind of barn or food stored in at a place that was considered a house, you could walk to that and then 3000 steps from there if you needed to go get some food. Any farther than that was sin. So a very practical way 
where you could count your steps and know I just obeyed that law. Another example, Exodus 28 through 11, talks about uh, carrying a load on the Sabbath. What constitutes carrying a load? Did you break this commandment this morning with your great big study Bible? How much does it weigh? If you want to not disobey this commandment, we have to be careful. So you shall not do any work. Or you or your son or your daughter. Daughters can't do any work either. Your male servant, female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So you read that law and then you have to ask yourself, okay, then what constitutes a load? How do I know if I'm obeying this or not? So they came up with all kinds of rules or regulations so you could be they could be sure that they were obeying this. Now, in that day, you know, you had robes and you have cloaks and you carried them around because the weather changed and things like that. It wasn't you didn't have air conditioning, heat and you just get out in your car or whatever. So they were carrying. But uh, if you carried your clothing, any extra clothing that you carried with you, that was considered a load. You can't carry it. If you want it. You've got to wear it. If you wear it, you're not carrying a load because you're just wearing your clothes. So for those of you that think, wow, it gets cold at New Covenant Fellowship on Sundays. I need to bring a sweater just in case or whatever. Layers. You can't carry it. You've got to wear it. Jacket, sweater. So how far did they take this? I quote John MacArthur, tailors did not carry a needle with them on the Sabbath for fear they might be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform work. Nothing could be bought or sold. Clothing could not be dyed or washed. A letter could not be dispatched, even by the hand of a Gentile. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp, although a fire already lit could be used within certain limits. Because all this is work. For that reason, some Orthodox Jews today use automatic timers to turn on lights in their homes well before the Sabbath begins. Otherwise, they might forget to, forget to turn them on. And then they got to meet in the dark because you can't turn the light on because it's considered work on the Sabbath. You have to wait till the Sabbath is over. And you don't want to spend the night in the dark. So use modern technology. Baths. Could not be taken for fear some of the water might spill onto the floor and then you'd have to do the work of washing it up. Chairs could not be moved. It might, if you drag them across the, the ground, it might cause a furrow. That would be work. You moved the earth. A woman would not, a woman was not to look in a mirror. You don't know what I'm going to say. Why are you laughing? Hold on a second. A woman was not to look in the mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. I did not put that in there. I promise. So this is serious stuff. I mean, if you slight, you keep slicing it, dicing it, slicing it. This is what the commandment says. Here's how we are to obey it. Here's how we apply it. And so over the years, more rules and more regulations, of course, because there are more questions 
about, well, did I just, if I do this, is that disobedience? And what if I only put one sleeve in my sweater? You know, there's always something that we have to wrestle with. And they take it very seriously. And so everything is very, very strict. And they have these lots of rules and regulations and they are taught to the people. Now you know why back in chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they just would give you rule after rule after rule of what it meant to really be in good standing with God. Man, that's exhausting. It's very, very exhausting. So he says, come to me. Come under my yoke. Work with me. Do life with me. You're not going to find rest in these commands. You'll find your rest in me. So they added to the law in their efforts to apply it. Now you understand why they're thinking so badly of Jesus. Another thing that they did, um, in addition to adding to the law, is that they refused any exceptions of the law. And so Jesus gives them these examples of actual Old Testament exceptions. And he talks about in the Old Testament with David and his men, they're on the run. They don't have time to just go to the grocery store and, and pack up. They're on the run and they're about starved to death. And they come to the temple and they do a big no-no. And this was a big no-no. They broke the law and Jesus acknowledges that because the bread and the temple... The priests, only the priests can make it and only the priests can eat it in their worship to God. These guys are hungry and hungry men do crazy things. So they go in there and they're like, bread, eat. <laughs> and so they got the bread of the presence and they ate it. Therefore, they stayed alive. First Samuel chapter 21. They broke the rules, but they saved their lives. And Jesus mentions that. And then he also says, have you ever wondered? Okay, if you're going to take, be so strict with the law, have you ever wondered why the priests get to work on the Sabbath? And yet they're not struck dead. As a matter of fact, they're guiltless. And yes, what they're doing in their ministry is real work. And nobody else is supposed to do it. So have you ever wondered why they're guiltless before the Lord? In other words, they're not looking at the law Correctly, they're not even taking or making the exceptions that God himself makes in the law. The Old Testament doesn't support the standards and the regulations that they are disseminating. And Jesus is pointing out you're drawing the wrong conclusions. Because thirdly, you're missing the heart. So they add to the law, they refuse any exceptions, and they're really just missing the point. Of the whole law, which is why they wound up here in the first place. See, according to their rules and regulations over the years, they slice it and dice it. It's very important to obey the Sabbath. Therefore, you can't do good. You can't help people on the Sabbath because you're going to break it doing that. And it's more important to not do this and to rest than to help a needy person. Got it wrong. It's not more important to obey that unless an absolute Emergencies. Jesus just flat out says it. It's lawful. It is. It's lawful. It's lawful to help people and to do good. Anything good, it's lawful to do on the Sabbath. You've misunderstood the heart of the law. 
And here they are thinking to Jesus, I mean, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come in here with your disciples and they're just eating grain on the Sabbath? And then you are have this opportunity to do good. And you break God's law. Who do you think you are? This is brewing up in their hearts. So Jesus makes an attempt to try to show them how far off they've gotten. When, when you approach God's wrong world, law wrongly as if it's your right standing with God and it's that means you just wind up all over the place and the obvious is not so obvious anymore. Jesus tries to bring it back and give them a very obvious scenario. And it is, of course, the sheep. In agrarian culture, they know all about farming. But what are you going to do? It's a Sabbath and one of your sheep is in the yard and it's fallen into that fence hole that you never put a post in before the Sabbath went down. So you're on the Sabbath. You can't finish the fence. The, uh, your sheep is out there. Bah, 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 bah. And this doesn't work any longer. You still hear because it it's getting louder. What are you going to do? Are you going to just risk it getting sick or just dying until the Sabbath is over? Or are you going to go out and help it? Free it and release it? What are you going to do? The sad thing about it is they would say, I guess I'm going to do this because I can't break God's law. Jesus says it's, it's lawful to have mercy on the Sabbath. It's a good thing to have mercy on the Sabbath. And then he drops the bomb by saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. You know what? Basically what that means is I'm God. I'm the one who came up with the Sabbath. And you're going to accuse me of breaking my own law? Don't you think maybe you're... It's not, it's not me, it's you. So you could imagine how angry they are at what Jesus is doing and all these implications. And, and he's saying, and by the way, something even more important than David is here in your midst. Something even more important than the temple is here in your midst. And if David can go and eat that bread in the temple and live to tell about it. in the Because he's in the presence of God, because that's where the presence of God dwelt. Then my disciples in the presence of God certainly can take some grains of uh, heads of grain and, and satisfy their hunger. Jesus is in essence saying I am God. Uh, I have the authority. I'm the one that came up with the regulations. And it's actually really a good thing to show mercy on the Sabbath. You have sorely misunderstood what has been written through the centuries. So. That's a sinful heart. And that's what hardening our hearts That's where it can bring us. That's when we reject God's promptings and God's invitations for us to come under his yoke and for us to believe in him by faith. See, Jesus threatened this whole system that they came up with because they came up with the wrong system. Sin had bound them to where even the obvious wasn't so obvious anymore. I remember before I became a Christian 
uh, in my late teenage years, I had heard the gospel plainly and I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. But when I looked out into the masses, I thought, well, if it was true that everybody in the all of humanity is going to hell for not believing in Jesus, then obviously more people would believe in Jesus because who wants to go to hell? Therefore, this must not be true. Now, that made perfect sense to my darkened mind, and it enabled me to justify my lost state. When, when hearts reject the gospel and the truth, when we don't give God leeway and let him come in and do his beautiful work in our hearts, we, the obvious isn't even obvious anymore. That puts us in a very dangerous predicament. Their hearts, their hard hearts have them condemning the guiltless. So what Matthew does next really makes perfect sense. It seems like it's out of place because he goes back into the Old Testament. And he quotes an Old Testament scripture. But what he's actually doing is he's giving us this context of why things are happening the way they are. Why Jesus is responding the way he is to even the Sadducees and Pharisees. So look at God's servant. Secondly, in verse 15, remember, they're plotting to kill him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Now, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The whole idea is that Matthew's. Enlightening us to the idea that Jesus is God's chosen one and it was prophesied how he will minister. What it, what his ministry will look like. He, he's God's chosen servant. John Piper says it's a remarkable thing to be chosen by God. God's choosing is not like our choosing. We're given options. God is not given options. He makes options. He did not canvass the Jewish candidates for Messiah and choose Mary's son. He had begotten from all eternity the only one who could bring hope to a lost world. Christ came into the world as the eternally chosen one. This is the servant chosen by God to do the very things that he is doing. And not only is he chosen, but he's loved by God. He delights what drives Jesus to that obedience is that he knows his obedience Delights his father. That's the motivation. That's the drive there to do the will of God. He serves God in his obedience and he also serves sinners in, a, in his obedience. And God is pleased with that. And so it compels him to be self-controlled. God's put his spirit upon him. And look at the difference in fruit. Look at the fruit that Jesus bears in his teaching ministry. And then look what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are creating. Look at the fruit of bondage versus freedom. 
and love. Stark contrast. And now we and now we know the answer to, well, wait a minute, Jesus is God and he's got all this power, he lightning and thunder in his in the palms of his hands. I know what I would do with my enemies if they accused me of these things and twisted my words and and were plotting against me. Why doesn't he do something about it? It's right here. Wasn't the plan. That's not how he brings a victory. He remains quiet on purpose. You're not going to find him raising Cain and, and having all these protests and getting everybody that he can riled up to protest this treatment that he's under. No, it's all part of his plan. He endures it. He serves God through it because the way that he brings victory this time is not by taking life. It's by giving his life. It's by personal sacrifice. He doesn't want to draw any unnecessary attention to himself. So he says, don't go and tell because he understands the plan and the timeline and he's got to make it to a certain point. And he can't let the hostility get too intense before it's time. He's he's got the water on the stove and it's at the perfect temperature it's, and he can't let it boil yet. Because it's not time. So he's trying to control the atmosphere there and not let people stick their hand right in the hornet's nest. He keeps a low profile until it's time to go to the cross. But if anybody had a right to protest would it not be the king of the universe? And we close by looking at Jesus's mindset. He will not break. He will not devastate. He won't a, a, a reed that's that's been hurt, that's been damaged, that's been broken. He's not going to pluck it up like our throwaway culture and say, oh, you're too far gone. I'll just get another one. When life deals a devastating blow and we're deeply bent over and we're deeply bruised. The Psalms psalmist reminds us in 3418, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's the kind of God that we serve here this morning. And a lot of times life throws us hard things and we come to church and we are that we're that bruised reed. So how does God look at us? What he wants to do is he wants to take you. This is just his heart. It's who he is. He wants to take you and prop you up, pack the dirt back around you, give you what you need to keep on going and keep on growing if you're bruised. And he doesn't quench a smoldering Wick, have you ever felt like, man, I just, I have nothing left anymore. And you've seen the barely flickering candle and it's like any second, just any little, it's it's out. It's going to turn into a puff of smoke. You ever feel like that in the presence of God in your life? Gosh, I just, it's not going to take one more thing and I am out. Sure you have. Everybody has sensed that. The slightest breeze. Jesus isn't going to. He's not the kind of person that says, oh, let me just put you out of your misery. He comes and he fans it. So that you can shine bright again. The love of 
Christ. And because He's so gentle and He's so loving and He's so caring, we can trust Him with everything. We can trust Him with our broken hearts. We can trust Him with our flickering souls, His gentle demeanor. He's so patient with sinners. It's not what we offer Him, it's what He offers us. And so, Puritan Richard Sibb says, Are you bruised? Be a good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in him than sin in you. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.